I have no doubt that you have heard this text preached on or have encountered this text in your devotional readings a number of times. And I would suggest or I would, I would say that probably the vast majority of references that you have seen to this text or the vast majority of sermons that you have listened to on this text seem to hone in on this thought. When the storms of life hit, look to Jesus and he will calm them. And every time I hear that, I think, really? Is that really the point of, of this this text? And is it even true that Jesus always calms the storms, always settles the turmoil, always eliminates the distresses that you experience in your life? Is that true? Does Jesus actually ever promise to do that in this life? When you turned to Christ in faith in your own life, did you come to him on the premise or with the idea that he is actually committed to calming all of your personal storms? Well, let me ask, are all the storms of your life calm? If you're anything like me, no. And when one storm does end up being calmed, Another one, it simply paves the way for another one to be stirred up and start. I've actually heard people use this text or refer to this text as the foundation for their teaching and books. You know, Jesus calms the storms of your marriage. Jesus will calm the storm of your unpaid bills. Jesus will calm the storm of your health difficulties. But again... Are we really, in this life, promised any of these things? No. And this text is not referring to that idea of Jesus calming the storms of your life. But what we can say about the storm of this text is far greater. That when the world is agitated, when the world is in turmoil, when everything seems to be going awry and, and our very lives are even in danger, Christ is with us. As we face, as we endure, and as we seek to honor Him in all as aspects of our life, Christ is with us. This text does not guarantee that we will that the, 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 the trials that we face in life will ever go away. This does not guarantee that the agitations of the world will always be calm. The promise of this text is that Christ is with us as we go through them. Now, there are times when the Lord will indeed still a trial in your life. There are times when indeed the Lord will calm a trial in your life and we give Him all praise and we give Him all glory when He does. But if He doesn't, know this, that Christ is in the boat with you and that means if you truly love Him, you will get to your great and final destination an eternity of joy with Him. In many ways, it's another sign of our, our culture's relentless focus on the self that we turn this stellar text that reveals to us in clear manner the identity of Christ into a story about what He does for us. We focus on what we think we can get from him rather than zeroing in on the main point of the text, which we find in the line of the disciples at the end. What sort of man is this? And the answer, this is God himself. This is God himself come to us in the flesh, worthy of our worship, worthy of our confidence, worthy of our faith. And even if he doesn't calm the storm, he doesn't, even if he doesn't calm the trial you are facing, it is God himself who is with you through them. And as I read and studied the text this week, I was struck by the phrase at the end, in the last verse, 27, and the men marveled. And the men marveled. 
The word used here means to be greatly astonished at, but at the same time disturbed by. Greatly astonished at, but also at the same time greatly disturbed by. You see, the disciples felt some or experienced some level of amazement, but mixed with that amazement was a feeling of disturb, being disturbed. Mark actually records in his um, um, recording... Mark actually records this same event in chapter 4. He said that uh, they were filled with great fear. Meaning, at the sight of Jesus' power on this day, the disciples were alarmed. They were frightened. They were terrified. And the question that comes to my mind is, why would the disciples be more afraid after the storm had been calmed by the word of Jesus than they were as the storm rocked and pounded against their boat and they feared for their very lives? The answer to that question is the point of this text. This text is about the identity of Jesus and for those who follow him as as his disciples, the place of faith and fear in our lives. Those are the two things that this text addresses. The identity of Jesus and the place of fear and or faith in the life of one who follows him. Now up to this point in Matthew's gospel, he's been taking his readers on an ascending journey, an upward trajectory as he incrementally displays to us the identity of Jesus. And we started these miracle chapters of Matthew's gospel with his Jesus cleansing a leper by both his word and his touch. It's a most astounding and wonderful miracle all by itself. And then we move to the healing of a centurion's servant, which is an astounding miracle because the servant is not anywhere near Jesus at the moment when Jesus heals the servant. He simply says the word, and his word is able to move and heal someone who is some distance away from him. Jesus didn't even have to visit the servant. And then he healed Peter's mother of a serious, life-threatening fever with a touch, this time without saying any words. And on that night, crowds formed around Jesus again as he healed uh, people of their sicknesses and he cast out evil spirits from those who had been oppressed by them with just a word. Matthew will continue to reveal uh, Christ's power over Uh, creation itself in our text this morning and he keeps going on after this as he reveals that christ also has power over satan's legions christ has power even more to forgive sins christ even has power to bring the dead back to life this is what matthew's upward trajectory that he is leading us on these chapters in matthew are truly an incredible picture of who our lord jesus christ actually is he is god come to us in the flesh and as we focus on these verses in chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, they can be, this narrative can be split into six movements. Six movements. The first of which we find in verse 23. And here we see the first movement, which is this, the journey begins. The journey begins. Verse 23, we read, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. You see, Jesus is now tired from a long day of ministering to the crowds. The crowds forming around him once again. And after healing all of the sick and the many oppressed by, the demon, by demons, he ordered his disciples to go over to the other side. Verse, chapter 8, verse 18. And as they were preparing to do so, two would-be disciples came up to Jesus and offered to follow him wherever he would go. First, a scribe. A scribe professed his dedication and desire to be one of Jesus' disciples, to be one of Jesus' inner circle. And then after that, the scribe, another would-be disciple, declared their intention to follow Jesus after they had put all of their earthly affairs in order. And Jesus, quite surprisingly, in contrast to many of the evangelistic techniques we see used in churches today, called on both of these men to take a step back and to count the cost before leaping into such a life-altering decision as serving Jesus. And after these two encounters, Jesus, along with the disciples, finally got into the boat, as we see in verse 23. Now know this, these disciples that get into the boat with Jesus, 
according to Matthew, at this point, it's uh, James and John and Peter and Andrew. These were seafaring men. They have spent their lives on the water, no doubt making their living and feeding their families by the fishing industry. And they no doubt noted the color of the skies, and perhaps they even knew that a storm was approaching. Jesus in Matthew 16, when he rebuked the Pharisees, made mention of this common knowledge when he said to them in 16, chapter 16, verse 2, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. So as Jewish fishermen of the day, they would have known uh, maybe it's not such a good time to go out onto the boat, but our Lord Jesus Christ knows exactly what he is doing. He knows that there will be a storm greater than anything the disciples might expect. And as they embark on this journey across the lake, Jesus is about to teach them a few lessons. So number one, the journey begins... Verse 24, we move to the second movement. The storm hits. The storm hits. Verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. A great storm, Matthew tells us. Not just any storm. Not like the average or manageable disturbances on the lake that these disciples had probably faced a number of times before. No, Matthew uses a special word here to describe the storm. It's an unusual word to describe water agitation. The word is usually reserved for violent land-rocking earthquakes. Matthew wants his readers to feel the frenzy of the storm, the rampaging waves of the sea crashing against the side of the boat again and again and again as they upset the boat's balance and threaten with every single colliding wave to capsize the boat and everyone in it. The the disciples' lives truly are in danger because of this storm. And know this, if any of these men fall overboard, guess what? It is, that's it for them. They would be carried away <clears throat> by these turbulent waters to drown and be lost on the ocean floor, leaving behind grieving family members. This truly was a serious and precarious position that they found themselves in. And as the raging storm only increased in ferocity and intensity... And as, the, as Luke tells us, the raging waves swamped and broke into the boat. And Mark tells us that the boat was already filling with the water from those waves. These disciples who'd operated and navigated crafts through these waters hundreds, maybe thousands of times, were helpless to steady the ship as this furious, unrestrained, uncontrollable, unmanageably intense tempest threatened to both dispatch them and terminate them. Now, can you imagine the fear? Put yourself in the scenario and feel the terror. What would you have done? What would you have done when your alarm and your distress and your panic levels continued to rise as you thought, my life is about to be forfeit? Now, our text goes on to give us two responses to the storm, that of Jesus and that of the disciples. And we're meant to see in these two responses a contrast. So we've seen the journey begin. We've seen the storm hit. And now we see the first response to the storm in the next movement, which is Jesus sleeps. Jesus sleeps. Look at verse 24 again. There arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Jesus was asleep. Now this, this uh, gives us a couple of things to make note of here. First, uh, that Jesus actually sleeps after an exhausting day 
is a display of the humanity, the true humanity of Jesus to the reader. As truly human, our Lord required such things as sleep and as food. And we will see that as truly God, He possesses the power and the authority to command the weather and it obeys His word. But the revelation of Christ's humanity is an incidental observation to this text. The primary point of Jesus sleeping here, the primary point of his deep and restful sleep in the stern of the boat during a terrifying storm, is to show to us the depth of Christ's trust in, confidence in, the will, the plan, and the oversight of his heavenly Father. This storm exhibits Christ's confidence in the Father's will regardless of the outcome. Jesus displayed his trust in the good and sovereign hand of the Father by sleeping. Now, I don't want people to come to me and say, see, Pastor Gino's telling us that we can sleep in until all hours of the day because that's how we show trust to God. It's not what I'm saying. This is not referencing the lazy person's sleeping until noon or one or whatever time you sleep if you're that lazy. This is about the sleep of trust. The sleep of trust because you know that God has got this. I mean, how often have you, if you're anything like me, stayed awake longer than you should have because you were worried about different scenarios or anxieties in your life. Right? But Jesus here is sleeping in trustful sleep because he knows that his heavenly Father is in control. This storm and Christ's sleeping through the storm reveals the depth of Christ's trust in his Father. It also reveals the lack of faith and trust in the disciples. You see, Christ trusts his Father. Matthew has been revealing this to us right from the beginning. And this solid, unwavering trust of Christ with the Father, to the Father, is something the enemy sought to break. If you remember, back in Matthew 4, you've got the wilderness trials, the wilderness temptations. After 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness with no food, Matthew tells us that Jesus was hungry. And it was at this point of weakness, as it looked like Christ might very well succumb to starvation, that Satan appeared to Jesus saying, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, Jesus, why are you suffering like this? Why endure such a trial? Why go through such difficulty? If your father truly loved you, why? He would give you bread, wouldn't he? What father leaves his son in the wilderness to starve like this? Forget his will and provide for yourself. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus is supremely confident in the will of the father for his life. And so he refuses Satan's temptation. He trusts his father even when on the verge of death by starvation. And he will live without worry, live without anxiety, live without fear, and in accordance with the father's will, whatever comes. It is this unshakable trust that no matter what happens, no matter what is going on around him, no matter how little he has, no matter how hungry he is, how close his life is to ending, no matter what happens in Jesus' life, he knows the Father is good. He knows his Father is in control. And it is this assurance, this rock-solid assurance in the good and perfect will of his Father that permits and inspires this restful sleep of Jesus in the midst of a raging and violent storm that swirls all around him as he sleeps in that boat. And the disciples, can you imagine, you're one of the disciples on that boat and it's being tottered and thrown all over the place and you look to the back and you see Jesus sleeping there. You might might think to yourself, what is he doing? 
How can he sleep at a time like this? Doesn't he know what's going on? But in sleeping, Jesus lived out his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when he said, which of you, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? So much so that even in the midst of a life-threatening storm, Jesus sleeps and kept sleeping. While the storm raged and howled around as the winds whipped against the boat and tossed it all over the place, as the water spilt over the sides and filled up the boat, Jesus sleeps and keeps sleeping. Tired from his work, resting in preparation for further ministry, Jesus simply trusts his Father and sleeps. This truly is the sign of one who has great faith and great trust in God. And it's not just Jesus. This idea of sleep in Scripture is oftentimes used by others as a picture of trust in God's goodwill. King David, for example, when his son Absalom turned the people of Israel against him by his smooth and deceptive words, after Absalom had increased his number of supporters and captured the hearts of the people of Israel... In general, David, in a preemptive move, fled the city to avoid being put to death by Absalom. So, have any of you ever endured a trial like that? The theft of your kingdom along with your son seeking to end your life. If you ever were in a trial like that, how do you think you'd respond? Here's what David said, writing about this exact situation in Psalm 3, verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5 said, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to God and he answered me, he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You hear that? I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid. We see again in Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. David confidently asserted his trust in the Lord again, saying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's lying down and his sleeping in the midst of upheaval and in the midst of trouble around him is a pointer to his confident trust in the Lord's plan and will. David knows it. You are the one who sustains me, Lord. You are the one who makes me dwell in safety. You are the one I trust. And because of that, because I know all of this, I can sleep confident in you. And it's not only David, but the Apostle Peter, who in the boat is panicked like everybody else, but later on he must have learned from Christ. Because after Christ had ascended to heaven, Peter himself, in the midst of a grave, great, life-threatening trial, also slept. In Acts 12, we are told of the time when King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The text tells us that the murder of James greatly pleased all the Jews, and so Herod arrested Peter with the intention of putting Peter to death too. The murder of James created such fanfare and positive response for Herod Let's kill some more of these disciples. So Herod seized Peter, put Peter in prison, and set four squads of soldiers around Peter as guards. What did Peter do in such a situation? What would you do in such a situation? 
How did Peter respond under such pressure? As he awaited his own execution at the hands of King Herod. Acts 12.6 tells us, When Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. How can David and Peter sleep during such tumultuous predicaments? What are you like when trouble is raging around you? Can you, like Peter and David, sleep soundly, trusting God's will in all circumstances? Trusting that God's will is the best will, even, even if that means that you end up like James, killed by the sword, or Peter, free from prison on that very night. You see, both of those are the Lord's will, right? Even if it means a season in, wilderness, in the wilderness wandering like David. When Absalom overtook the hearts of the people, David had to flee, and he lived in the wilderness for a bit. All of these events proceed from the ordination of our great and glorious God. Can you fall asleep on, in the stern of a boat on the raging waters, like your Lord did in the midst of great turmoil? I mean, what faith this requires, right? What confident trust in the Lord this takes, right? When trouble surrounds you, how do you respond? Because as Jesus makes clear, as he will make clear, your response actually reveals the, either the depth or the weakness of your faith. What a revelation of faith it is when we can sleep soundly without fear panic or anxiety knowing that God is in control no matter what happens what a witness to a terrified world when Christians can sleep be confident and not be agitated along with that world because we are we know that God is in control no matter what happens so then whatever is going on in the world listen lie down and go to sleep God is in control He's working all things out in accordance with his perfect will. And if that's the case, if you truly believe that, then I have a question for you. Why fear? Why fear? Now, let's contrast Jesus' response to the storm with that of the disciples. Because while Jesus sleeps, the fourth movement or the fourth section of this text is that the disciples panic. The disciples panic. So we've moved from the journey begins, the storm hits, Jesus sleeps, and now the disciples panic. So as the storm raged on, instead of looking at Jesus and learning from him and imitating the confident assurance of Jesus, instead of noting the total trust that Jesus had in the Father, instead of looking at Jesus and saying, look at the peace that this man is experiencing during such a time, they panicked and proved tremendously fearful. And this, in spite of everything they've witnessed up to this point, I mean, Jesus has definitely proven himself to be a different sort of man, right? A man with a great degree of power and authority. A man with the favor of God resting upon him. They have seen Jesus at work, driving away demons, driving away de diseases with a word. And yet, and yet, even so, when their safety is threatened, their immediate impulse is fear and panic. Now, it might be easy to hear of the panicked and fearful disciples this morning and laugh. Ha! If I was in that boat, things would have been way different. They were so foolish. If I was in that boat, I'd have said to everybody, hey man, let's trust the Lord and let him sleep. We'll be okay. No, you wouldn't have. The disciples are a mirror into our own identity. Had any of us been on that boat on that day, we would have responded the exact same way. I mean, all you need to do is look at the world today and look at the response of followers of Jesus 
to the agitations of the world today. Quite often, they mirror the responses of those who reject Christ in the world. Sometimes, it's even difficult to tell who the Christians are from the non-Christians based on how we respond to the agitations and the turmoils and the upheavals in the world. Not a lot of sleepers. In many ways, it seems like we are just as fearful and just as alarmed as everyone else. Do you really notice any difference between the Christian and the non-Christian when the idol of safety is threatened? Do you really notice any difference between the Christian and the non-Christian when the idol of safety is threatened? We flee. We retreat in anxiety. Our fear levels rise. We argue. We bicker. We divide from one another as we labor to force everyone to agree with our perspectives. And when civic leaders make decisions that we don't appreciate, we moan and we complain and we explode in anger and we take to the streets as though these practices, as though the ways of humanity are the solution to the problem. And we forget the Lord's word through Jeremiah when he said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. You're not going to solve the world's problems. I'm not going to solve the world's problems. You know who will? Jesus. May it never be that you get filled with fear over what is going on in this world. Why? Because if you love Christ... If you know Christ, if you are a child of Christ by grace through faith, then guess what? You are in his boat. He is in the boat with you. And he sleeps confidently as we, his children, ought to do as well. Imitate the confidence of Christ in the will of the Father. And as Jesus sleeps, imitate. Don't panic. Imitate. Remember, as Psalm 22 tells us, Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. As Jesus rests confident, confident, imitate him. Don't panic. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Like Jesus, don't panic because as Psalm 11 tells us, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. His eyes are watching closely and they examine the sons of men. And as you look to Christ to imitate him, don't be fearful because Psalm 103 tells us the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. All those texts tell us the Lord's throne is in heaven and he is in control of all things, over all things. And this is why Jesus can sleep. And this is why the disciples panic because they don't recognize this. And as a result, they are gripped and seized with fear. Listen, you and I ought to know, based on reading Scripture, reading God's Word, He has revealed it clearly that His rule extends to all things, even the difficulties and the agitations throughout the world. The Lord revealed this himself, Isaiah 45, he said, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. And the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos as well, declaring that no disaster befalls a city unless the Lord has done it. Saying in Amos 3.6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The implied answer is No. And if these things are the domain of the Lord, something Jesus is well aware of, then why fear? He's got this. He's got a plan for it all. Nothing about this storm will be wasted, but instead all of it will contribute to his glorious plan and purpose. We know this. We know this according to Paul's letter to the Romans, that the Lord performs all these deeds to his own glory and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The Lord uses such times of disaster also to reveal to us the level of faith present in those who claim to love him, serve him, follow him, and believe in him. So I want you to just think for a second about your own life. As the world constantly endures turmoils and upheavals and corruptions, 
What do your responses to these events reveal about your faith? Who in this narrative do you identify with most? The panicked and fearful disciples or the sleeping confident Christ? Because the panic-stricken disciples, in their fear, went and woke Jesus saying, Save us, Lord! Save us, Lord! We are perishing! In verse 25. Now, we will be fair to the disciples because in one sense, their shaking Jesus awake from his sleep is a sign of faith. It's a recognition that he can do something. They know enough to call on him in their time of trouble. But they called on him in their hysteria. They called on him in their frenzied and fearful trembling. And how did Jesus respond? Not to his being woken up, but to their fear? By rebuking them. The next movement, movement number five, is the Lord Jesus rebukes. The Lord Jesus rebukes. And he, he rebukes two things in this text. First, the disciples, and then the storm itself. But first, look at, the, look at his rebuke of the disciples. It says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid? And note that Jesus asks this question as this seismic storm of monumental proportions turbulently rampages across the sea. Jesus admonished the disciples while the storm was still going on, according to Matthew. He rebukes the storm next. But what did he rebuke them for? Did he rebuke them for waking him up? No. Did he rebuke them for calling to him for help? No. He rebuked them for their fear. You see that? Why are you afraid? Their fear revealed the level. Their fear revealed the weakness of their faith. And as the storm raged around them, Jesus asked them again, Jesus asked them, why are you afraid? And the word for fear here is not a nice word. It carries the sense of cowardly. The NET translation picks up on this nuance and, where, and you see this in, in the NET translation um, um, written like this. Why are you cowardly? you people of little faith. In essence, the fear of the disciples led Jesus to ask them this question, why are you such cowards? Why are you so afraid? Why are you responding to this storm in such a cowardly manner? Is there really any reason at all to be afraid? Even if the boat is tossed violently in this fierce typhoon, especially given the fact that I am in the boat with you, is there any reason to be afraid? What can be more opposite to the peaceful resting Jesus than cowardly disciples? And note that Jesus connects directly their level of faith with their level of fear. Did you see that, right? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Great fear reveals little faith. The disciples displayed such a weak trust as the terror gripped their hearts in the midst of this storm. And Scripture makes it clear that faith, real, strong, vibrant faith, trust, and confidence in the Lord inspires the exact opposite of fear. It inspires courage. Now think about your response again to the agitations and the events and the situations in our world. They're always changing. Old ones pass away, new ones arrive. But what is your fear level in the difficulties of the world? Because this is an indication of the strength or the weakness of your faith. It reveals the strength or the weakness of your confidence in your heavenly Father, in His power, His oversight, His goodness, His provision, His plan. And later on, Jesus will, in, in His ministry, Jesus made a promise to the disciples, a promise that is for all of us. When He said He leaves His peace with us. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you're on the boat with Jesus, sometimes the water is going to be really choppy. But he is in the boat with us. And if he's in the boat with us, what is there to fear? Lay hold of the peace that Christ has left to us. You see, King David recognized this. Again, we come back to King David, the man after God's own heart. When he fled from King Saul, who sought to kill him, David ran to a place called Gath. Now, if you remember, Gath was the home of the Philistines. And David was the man who had killed the greatest warrior in the Philistine army, Goliath. And the Philistines, as David went into Gath to escape from Saul, they recognized David. And they wondered about what to do with him. So again, we find David in another life-threatening situation. Seems like David went from one life-threatening situation to another. And what did he do in this life-threatening situation? He praised the Lord in Psalm, saying this, In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He says this as the Philistines are discussing what to do with him. It's a theme reiterated many times throughout Scripture. Psalm 118 says much the same. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And the writer of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews, also exhorted his readers to be content in this life. Why? Hebrews 13, 5. For he has said, this God, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And when we come to Christ in faith, Paul wrote to Timothy, saying this, God gives us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Constantly throughout Scripture, the giants of faith are the ones who can sleep confidently in the Lord's will, who don't, who look to the Lord rather than fear. And so again, I ask you, are you afraid? As you read or as you watch the news, as you scroll through the headlines on your phone or on your computer, are you afraid? I mean, we live in an age unlike any age before. It used to be that news took a long time to travel. You know, it, uh, you'd get your newspaper once a day and you'd read the headlines and maybe you'd see a few things on the news. And before that, sometimes, you know, in the medieval eras and things like that, it would take months to get news to you. But now, it takes seconds. We're updating the news second by second by second in every location on earth and the constant volleys of bad news, the relentless onslaughts of Henny Penny, the sky is falling, broadcasting, editorials and tweets really do take their toll on us, don't they? You hear bad news enough. If you hear it enough and you are not looking to God's word even more, it will begin to rewire your outlook on the world. It will inspire fear and cowardice rather than confident trust. If we aren't careful and diligent to keep looking to Christ, our fear levels will rise as we keep listening to the news of the world. Have you been fearful? Are you fearful about what's happening around the world right now? My question to you is why? Why? If you are a follower of Christ... He's in your boat. And guess what? That boat might be tossed around. That boat might look like it's in real danger of a catastrophic wreck at times. But the presence of Christ ensures that when all is said and done, that will not be the case. So why be afraid? Why lack courage? Why grow faint-hearted at the earthly difficulties that inevitably arise in a corrupt and fallen world? If you are Christ's children by grace through faith, take hold of his love. Take hold of him in confidence. Ponder his love for you. 
And the more you understand how much Christ loves his children, that love will cast out and drive out fear. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. I mean, what love is more perfect than Christ's? And if you know you belong to him and you know that he loves you, why fear anything? What a great witness to the world it would be, the confident, fearless Christian, confident in the Lord Jesus Christ, avoiding the worries and the distresses and the commotions, steering clear of the wrangling and the arguing because we know exactly who runs this place. We know exactly who sits on the throne ruling over all things. We know that he is moving history towards its intended goal and we are blessed to be a part of it. And we are blessed with the promise of eternity with him provided we have faith in Christ. Now in rebuking the disciples, Jesus did make it clear when he said, O you of little faith, that they did possess some degree of faith. So I'm not saying that if you fear, you have no faith. Their faith was enough to recognize that Jesus can save them, but not strong enough to keep them from fear and panic in the meantime. It's a small credit to the disciples. They at least had the wherewithal to rouse Jesus from his sleep when they were in fear. They knew that Jesus could help them. How he could help, they weren't quite sure. And so while rebuking them for their panic, for their fear, and for the weakness of faith, he said that they did possess faith. The disciples woke Jesus knowing that he is the only one who could help. So if you're a believer this morning, if you're afraid this morning, whose shoulder are you shaking to wake them up for help? Are you looking to Christ Because in all of the conversations that I seem to have, and maybe it's the same with you over this last year and a half, it seems like there are a lot of us waiting for the world to solve our fears. We're waiting for the world to invent. We're waiting for the world to make breakthroughs. We're hoping that we get our man in office. And if we only do that, then everything will be okay. And if you're looking to the world, you will always be afraid. Jesus is the only one who can inspire rock-solid confidence that takes away fear no matter what. Turn your eyes away from the troubles of the world and focus them on the Christ, on Christ who confidently trusts and rests in the loving arms of his heavenly Father. And you do the same because, as the old song says, soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Remember that song? Not only did Jesus rebuke the disciples for their cowardice and little faith, but he also responded to their request by rebuking the winds and the sea as well. As we read in verse 26, see it? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Jesus rose as the boat was tottering in the storm, and he rebuked the winds and the sea. He commanded them, speaking to the winds and the sea with the very voice that brought them into existence. The very voice of the one in whom all things hold together, according to Colossians 1.17. The authoritative voice of the Lord himself and the result of Jesus' word, creation's obedience. As the wind and the sea immediately calmed to the point of what Matthew says is a great calm, a perfect calm, a serene, glassy body of water. The result of Christ's display of power over creation itself led to the sixth and final movement of this narrative. The disciples marvel. The disciples marvel. Matthew tells us that the men in the boat with Jesus marveled, meaning they wondered. They were astonished at what they had just witnessed. Writing, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds of the sea obey him? While both Mark and Luke tell us that the disciples were afraid as they marveled. Luke wrote this in 825, and they were afraid 
and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. While Mark records in 441, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now you would think, right, that these disciples might be grateful. They might be thankful to Jesus for his display of power. You might think that the immediate calming of the sea would cause their flopping back into their boats, back into the seats of their boats with great relief saying, Whew, boy, am I glad that's over. But that's not what happened. Instead, after Jesus calmed the sea, the text tells us they were filled with great fear and astonishment. And the question I would ask is why? Why are the disciples now more afraid that Jesus, after Jesus has calmed the storm than they were as they were going through it? The answer is clear. They had just watched Jesus do something that, according to the Old Testament, only God can do. Control the weather. Throughout the Old Testament, it is God himself who sends floods. It is God himself who sends fire from the heavens. It is God himself who brings droughts and holds back the rain. And if you look at Jonah, it is God himself who redirects people by stirring up the seas. And we see the affirmation of God's sovereign and complete power over creation throughout the Psalms, for example. As David wrote in Psalm 65, O God of our salvation... The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. Psalm 89 reads, You, Lord, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104 makes it clear. He, the Lord, set the earth on its foundations that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. And finally, Psalm 107, which must have, been, must have immediately come to mind as the disciples watched Jesus still the storm. In Psalm 109, started, 107, starting in verse 23, we read, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The point being... These men in this boat with Jesus would have known their Old Testament enough to know that only the Lord himself can control the sea. These are not the workings of some mere wandering prophet. These are not the workings of some parlor magician who can pull a quarter out from behind some kid's ear. This is a deadly storm stilled by a simple word from Jesus. And up to this point, the people and even the disciples are all trying to figure Jesus out. Not quite sure what to make of him. But with each passing miracle or healing, the disciples add another piece to their understanding. But this, but this, controlling the weather, this is a game changer. And it dawns on the disciple for the first time, perhaps, maybe, this man in the boat, this Jesus, what sort of man is this? Could this be God himself? We know the answer is yes. This is God come in the flesh, standing in the boat with them. But they're still trying to figure it all out. But the thought, the possibility, elicits great fear in them. And they ask each other, 
What sort of man is this? What kind of what class of what origins is this man? I mean, we knew that he was more than a carpenter from Nazareth, Nazareth, but this he sleeps during a storm and then he commands that storm and it listens to him. This man is authoritative over creation itself. Who but the Lord is authoritative over creation? What sort of man is this? They're trying to classify Jesus, but Jesus is something entirely new, something they have never encountered before. He is the God-man, come not simply to still storms, but to save souls. This Jesus is, in fact, God come to us in the flesh to seek and to save the lost. God come to us in the flesh to blaze, to pioneer, to author the path to eternal life. And as we look back on the gospel accounts, we know Jesus lived a perfect life and died a death that paid for the sins of all who come to him in faith. And he rose again, proving that his atoning death had been accepted by the Father as payment for the sins of any and all who come to him in faith and trust. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. It is this Jesus who is with us as we sail our boats through this turbulent world. It is this Jesus who is our great example of confident trust and reliance on the will of the Father, even in the midst of the greatest terrors. This man who rests peacefully in the boat, is the same one who rises and rebukes the agitations, and when he does, they cease. This is the one we follow. This is the one who is with us. This is the one who loves us. So why fear? Why fear if Jesus is here? Because we know from this text that even the winds and the sea obey him. So the Lord spoke these words to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and they seem a fitting encouragement and exhortation to close our time together with this morning. These words are found in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 11 to 13. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Father, we praise you for the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That he can sleep in confident trust. I praise you for the rebuke and the exhortation that is found in this text for us, your children, not to be afraid. I pray that you would raise up in us the same levels of courage we see in our Lord Jesus, the same levels of courage that allowed Peter to sleep while he was in prison and David to sleep while he was being pursued in the wilderness. I pray that our, one of our great witnesses to the world would be our confident reliance and trust upon the Father. Trust in you. I pray that you would, for those um, of us who have little faith and great fear, I pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would minimize the fear and raise the faith and the courage. In all things, Lord, we desire to glorify you and to honor you and to exalt you. And so we pray that by our courageous reliance upon you 
especially during times like the ones we face now, that the world would see your goodness, that the world would see a most wonderful alternative, peaceful people, and they in turn would want that peace for themselves and they would come to you. We praise you and we thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.